Hello, welcome and bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's Siamese Inquisition yet again, episode 139 on Sunday the 5th of July. I'm Amish Phil. I'm Amish Ben. And I'm Amish Matt. And tonight's guest is Malin Baker. Malin is an expert on corporate social responsibility, a former co-chair and spokesman for the Green Party here in the UK, and he's also a successful YouTuber. Uh, his channel, The Malin Baker Show, covers current events, politics... The latest climate science, media bias, and more. Welcome, Alan. Thanks very much. Welcome. Is that a, a fair description of the channel? And um, yeah, it's it's not bad considering the first part is taken from Wikipedia, which um, <laughs> is it's one of those mixed blessings because I think somebody put that up when they were doing a project to put up sort of bits players who had wandered through the Green Party decades ago. And then that becomes what everyone sees about you. And, of course, being defined by what you did 30 years ago isn't necessarily what everybody wants. But you topped and tailed it with some modern stuff as well. So I, I have no complaints. Well, why don't we start about talking about your channel and what your sort of ethos is with the, the Malin Baker show and what you're trying to accomplish? Okay. So if I was to draw a thread through everything that I've done in my life, it's it's mostly been about trying to make some sort of a difference in some way. I wandered through campaigning, I went into politics, I went from there into working with businesses, with corporate social responsibility, as you said. And through all of that, I came across loads of different people who were making a difference, change makers, if you will, operating in lots of different ways some of them incredibly effective who nobody ever got to hear about because quite often people who most change the world aren't the ones who get the credit. And I just became interested in how do you actually most effectively tackle some of the problems that we're facing? Because we know, of course, that we're facing lots of fairly chunky problems in front of us, some of which are science-based, some of which are culture-based, particularly in these polarised times. So having become interested in that, I, I looked at all of our evidence base and just came up with this vision that a change maker was someone that works in a particular way. And particularly the effective change makers I've always known were not ideological people. They were evidence-based people and they learned their trade, if you will. They learned how change is made and how, how effective change is made. So really it started on that theme I started off doing an audio-only podcast where I interviewed a bunch of uh, different change makers that I'd come across and then other ones that I learned about, um, and then decided to move into the YouTube space instead. And then it kind of morphed, because having done a few that were focused on those themes, I mean, the, the trouble is the corporate stuff is, as far as a, a, a mainstream audience is concerned, the corporate stuff is... How can you put it? Dull and boring. <laughs> yeah. um, 
It's actually fascinating, but as far as most people are concerned, it's dull and boring. And if you can't engage them at the start, you can't show them how fascinating it is because most of the issues are generic issues and the struggles are human struggles, and they're all just as interesting as anything, except as soon as you put a corporate wrap around it, it just looks incredibly dull. So I started dealing more with current issues and one step led to another to another and I ended up um, getting into a debate on climate change and the sciencey stuff started to loom large on it. And where I ended up was that the non-ideological part, the, the analysing some of the problems from a determinedly evidence-led standpoint was the thing that's remained consistent. And I still do some things about how change is made and historically how change has happened and those sorts of things. But a lot of it, particularly because I do um, one of the, the shows every week at least, is a sort of roundup of a week current affairs look. So it's always looking at the current things, whether it's for um, COVID, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's climate change. And I, I seem to have been successful in one sense, which is that my audience is very mixed. I have deeply partisan people on both sides, plus some people in the middle who embrace the non-ideological part, but also a lot of really partisan warriors. And so the discussion forums for these videos get particularly lively uh, as a result, which is not what I would have expected. I would have expected that, you know, I would have attracted people who bought into the non-ideological, evidence-driven approach. Um, but actually, uh, I think everyone else just takes it as a challenge and they just sharpen their knives and, yeah. and dive in, which is all good fun. It's a breath. Uh, that's the long version to your very short question. That's, that's fine. It's a breath. I was thinking before, it's a bit of a breath of fresh air because I think it's quite striking anyone going to your channel. And you mentioned the, the Friday Roundup videos, the, the news videos, in that it's incredibly it, uh, non-partisan compared to what you'll get from most mainstream media sources. And that's something that's lacking, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it didn't used to be. I mean, you know, we used to look to the BBC and and other national institutions for for this. That was what they were meant to be. And then you had columnists and opinion makers and then the internet came along and it all became democratised. But opinionated people thrive best in these channels you know, because they attract an audience, which my, my audience would be 10 times the size it is now if I was rabidly for one or the other side <laughs> and really playing to that audience. However, people look at the BBC now, sad to say, and where you see there's this culture war that we've got going on with uh, identity politics and all these sorts of things, there are certain things that have slipped into uh, the, the mainstream that, genuinely do not have a consensus, genuinely are not non-partisan in their outlook. And so it, it does seem as though there, there is a hunger, among some people at least, to say, well, can we step back from the, 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 the rabid warriors on each side and have a look what the evidence says and you know, stare it in the face when it's good news and stare it in the face when it's bad news and try and work out what it means. And, of course, we'll get that wrong often, human beings are not wired to be totally free from bias. I mean, the more you know about psychology, the more you understand how impossible and objective that is, but it doesn't hurt to try. 
And if you're aware of the potential for cognitive bias and all of all of the other things that can lead you astray, at least you can aim to be in an ongoing open mindset. I mean, I, I see it as the scientific method in that a genuine scientist working in a on the bleeding edge of their particular field should be excited when a piece of research comes up that challenges the norm <laughs> and even that challenges their last research paper because it's an opportunity to get closer to the truth. And I think you have to be really immersed in the scientific mindset to actually do that. And the scientific community is just as full of people who will circle the wagons and defend their orthodoxies as anyone else. But the method itself pushes you to do that. And if you can achieve that, I just think it takes you to some interesting places because very rarely are complex issues down to wisdom that is owned exclusively by one side or the other. And very rarely are the best answers wholly in the possession of one side or the other. Um, so I, 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 anyway, I've always been fascinated by grey areas, so it was kind of where I was going to end up, I guess, one way or the other. I've, I, I ended up wandering through campaigning and politics and ended up at corporate social responsibility precisely because whatever side I was on, I started immediately prodding and poking it and questioning it, which didn't always go down tremendously well uh, <laughs> when you're in campaigning and in politics and those sorts of things. So ultimately, you end up doing a YouTube channel on your own where you can do whatever you like and upset whoever you want. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I was pretty shocked recently when you announced on one of your videos that you'd been demonetized. Not the channel overall. but that The videos. But a number of the videos. But you see, part of that is automated because when COVID-19 came along and most of YouTube people started working from home, they weren't able to run their normal checking system as robustly as they used to. So basically they set up the algorithm to check content and they put it onto super paranoia mode because they get lots of people harassing them when adverts for, you know, Disney alongside some dreadful something or another. So, if you were dealing with anything to do with COVID-19, it would demonetize your video. And of course, it's the only thing that anyone was talking about. So that was helpful. And then of course, Black Lives Matter comes along. So I made the mis- a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. I would, I would still do it. Of, of showing the picture of George Floyd's death as lots and lots of people were when you were talking about it. It's a natural thing to do. And, and that, and I, and I get this because advertisers don't necessarily want their adverts running against something that shows scenes like that so that was demonetized and it stayed demonetized but now they've decided i think their algorithm has decided my channel is living on the edge and so basically almost everything that i publish now immediately gets demonetized and then i have to ask a human being to go and actually have a look at it and and after two or three days they get around to it and they almost always then restore it but of course by then most of the um, most of the views have already gone. Yes. Really. It's just one of those things, but what can you do? Yeah, most of your views happen presumably within the first 48 hours or so of, of uploading. Usually, usually. Occasionally you get a video that will take off um, after several days where it will just suddenly, the algorithm will just suddenly have a funny turn or something. God knows how it works, really. But there have been one or two that have just sort of trundled along, trundled along, and they suddenly go, whoosh! But, you know, you can't expect that. That's not the norm. There was a 
very interesting video he did recently about it was when the um, Dominic Cummings uh, furore was happening. It was about the yes. the media. How did you term it? Feeding frenzy. The, the feeding frenzy. Yes, and, and it was interesting because I mean that video wasn't really about Dominic Cummings. It was about the feeding frenzy. The media, yeah, because because I'd I'd seen numerous times over the last 30, 40 years, when, when the media decide collectively that they're going to bring someone down, and, and there is a pattern. And, and up until this time, it has never failed, never failed. They always brought the person down, usually the day after the prime minister expressed their absolute um, support for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, as soon as the prime minister had said that, you'd know they were toast. This was the first time where it was important enough to the establishment to say, no, screw you lot, we are going to tough this one out because this person is actually playing a central role and we're not going to have you bring them down over nonsense. But whether it's been uh, various government ministers, high-flying ministers, Peter Mandelson, uh, I think, was was one of the casualties, various people, and even non-politicians like uh, Sharon Shoesmith, uh, who's the head of social services where the, the baby P thing happened. Various people, the, the media just collectively say, right, we're going to hammer. And they go through a process because, first of all, they, they just hammer them with the negative stories. And then they, uh, and, and of course, if it's a political one, then the opposition leaders will all come in and they'll demand the resignation. And then they'll find people within the person's own party who will start to say, oh, yeah, they should sort of definitely uh, uh, resign. Mm-hmm. And then the next step is to get third parties. <coughs> so bishops are, are, are often a favourite one. Pillars of the establishment who are going to be generally supporting whichever line it is, they will then be brought in the next day. And if they're still standing by then, then they'll try and peel off one or two of the big beasts of the person's own party or government. <laughs> and, and generally that's been enough. And if that isn't enough, then the fact that that's all going on in full view means that you know, other journalists are trying to wheedle out whatever other bad things they can find out about them. And you know, other people will be tempted to come forward with information because there'll be a nice fat fee for them if they do. And so then there'll be new stuff that gets added to it. I mean, in fact, there wasn't anything for Dominic Cummings tells you that there probably wasn't anything because believe me, they were trying to find it. If they could have added one more bad news story towards the end of that whole thing, it would have been very difficult to see that wouldn't have pushed him off the edge. Yeah, Uh, But they didn't. So presumably there wasn't anything, or, or they were incompetent, which is always a possibility. And for, for, for me, the Cummings thing, I, you can think what you like about Dominic Cummings. It's very hard to have an opinion about it. It wasn't shaped by the media furore. You know, I had various people say to me, I don't agree with you defending Dominic Cummings, which I didn't particularly, but that's how a lot of people saw it. Um, because, you know, even my nan thought that he should go. And I'm thinking, well, how does your nan know about it? She only knows about it because she's been reading the papers and watching the programmes. And that's the whole point. Anyone can be brought down if the people who people's nans depend upon for their source of information decide to twist, distort, to feed the worst view of and to just do it day over day over day. And this was a particular instance because, of course, we were in the middle of the pandemic. And logically, what they did was really quite damaging 
you know, they, they flagged this up. They said, oh, these people on the beach, you know, they, they're because of Dominic Cummings, which is stretching credibility a little bit. But mm. nevertheless, they were saying, oh, this is dreadful. Lockdown is falling apart. And it's all because Dominic Cummings went to Barnard Castle. And you think, well, yeah, but you then spent five days saying, does this mean that people will now lose faith? And surprise, surprise, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Yeah. At what point would you say that the responsible press in the middle of the pandemic would say, well, actually, we shouldn't go after him in this case because it might undermine the public will to do what needs to be done to be keeping the pandemic under control? And that's an interesting question that nobody's much interested in asking if they're journalists. And I'm not saying that we should throw everything under the bus you know, in terms of accountability because there's a crisis because you know, we all know authoritarian governments are very good at inventing crises as reasons why people shouldn't rock the boat. But it's, it's not the same as saying there should be no accountability. It's to say a five-day feeding frenzy where all you talk about in the middle of a pandemic is this bloke driving to Barnard Castle uh, and, and whether or not you take any of the consequences for having done that uh, in terms of the media. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I haven't heard before that... Uh... The press was sort of undermining the government in in their mission to to dethrone Dominic Cummings, and maybe a, a responsible press would have let it go. Maybe after a couple of days, <laughs> maybe not. I I think it's a it's a it's a question that should be asked. Yeah, you know what? Because it, it's an interesting grey area question. What is the responsibility? What's the balance between accountability and? sending out in a time of, of, of genuine crisis where we were asking people to do something extraordinary, mm. you know, wartime spirit and all that was being evoked. Yeah, would, would they have done that during the war? Would they have done a five-day feeding frenzy on Winston Churchill because he'd said something snippy to, his, to, 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 to one of his staff or something? You know, of course you well, wouldn't. It's particularly pertinent to the nature of the crisis, isn't it? Because the lockdown is unenforceable. There aren't enough police. It has to be, you have to have the people with you. And to yes. undermine public confidence is pretty dangerous. Yes. Oh, uh, and and there, you know, there, there may be a good time, good reasons for, for doing it, but was, you know, at the end of the day, they were all pro-Europe uh, and he was Mr. Brexit, so they were settling old scores. Was that a good enough reason, really? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question. I, I I didn't make the video in order to push my own answer to that question. Um, but it was interesting that whenever these feeding frenzies happen, very rarely do people notice that it unrolls in a very predictable campaign-like way. Uh, and they just see it as, as a natural sequence of events. Well, it's not. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's all campaign. It's, it, it's, it's well known by the people that do it what they're going to do and roughly in what order and, and, and how it works and how it brings down the, the quarry. And, and they have said to, you know, journalists have then written books and said, you know, when this sort of thing happens, there's only one thing that they take as their mutual goal, which is to bring the person down. And which is why you refer to it as a feeling frenzy. It, it takes on a logic all of its own. And, and, and it just completely overrode any interest in, the other stories that were going on at the time. It became all-consuming. Yeah. Is that a good thing, really? It's, uh, it contrasts quite uh, starkly with the Rebecca Long-Bailey dismissal this week because that was yes. pretty quick and sharp, and 
Um, uh, what did what did you make of that with with what she said? Well, I mean, in in some ways, it's the 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 biter being bit in that it it broadly is the the stronger left, shall we say, um, that has fed the most on the cancel culture modus operandi and and i'm not saying that specifically about her but just generally the culture of call out you know has come from from there predominantly and so when keir starmer has come in and one of the things that labor was being hammered with uh, under jeremy corbyn whether rightly or wrongly um was the anti-semitism charge and he you know has very clearly wanted to draw the line in the sand between the corbyn era and his era and one of the things that he said was, was to the Jewish community, we are drawing a line under this, you know, we will not tolerate anti-Semitism. So when she tweeted something that had, something that was close enough to the line that the people who've been calling each other out would definitely say it was over the line, whether it deserves to be over the line or not, if we were to step back from these febrile, oh my God, somebody tweeted something bad, cancel them days that we seem to be living in, I don't know. But nevertheless, the person whose article was being tweeted did then ultimately apologise for what they said, and then she tweeted it. And I think it, it was the fact that Starmer had asked her to take it down, and she refused, or she just didn't do it, um, that made him then say, right, you know, this is my moment early in my leadership to show my authority uh, and also to underline to the Jewish community that, you know, no, no, this is a new act and this will be the symbolic way to do it. So he was entirely playing to his interest in doing that. In many ways, they were they were polar opposite circumstances, really, because with the Dominic Cummings thing, you had somebody who is very much Boris Johnson's right arm. And, and to be honest, right arm and most of the brain, to be fair, you know, all of the programs and stuff are coming more from Cummings than they are from Boris. And, and Boris knows that, which is why he's determined to hold on to him. Whereas Starmer had had put Rebecca Long-Bailey into the shadow cabinet as a sort of balancing to sort of try to keep the left appease the hard on left. side. Yeah. But if they were going to start to do the internecine warfare thing, he wanted to be very clear. He was going to stamp his authority on it. So I think I understand why he then was very fast to move, but it was because he had very different interests that he, he was pursuing in doing that. And none of these things are general principles when the shoe's on the other foot and you know, some, somebody has done something where he's got an interest in holding onto them. Then uh, you know, see how that plays out because mm. people do different things depending on the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a very sort of fine line. I mean, the way I always saw it was that there's a difference between criticising the state of Israel or the Jew, or the, or the Israeli government and the Jewish people as a whole. This is where this line is between yeah. anti-Semitism and, and, you know, fair, fair criticism of a government. And uh, yes, I I, won't, I wasn't sure she crossed that line, but maybe I didn't read it, read 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 into well, it. Well, the, the 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 tipping point apparently is for you know if if you are specifically anti-Zionist, if you are specifically really lining up with the people who say that there should not be an Israel, 
you know, that that, that uh, it's all Palestinian land and, and there should not be in Israel because ultimately every every race has an inalienable right to a homeland to you know to to exist in that sort of regard so the line is supposed to be uh, that you know yes you can criticize what the government does or doesn't do and it does many things that are you know well worthy of holding to account um but if you say that you know israel doesn't have a right to exist the territory you know, it shouldn't be there. That is seen as being over the line, and I, I, I think that that is a, a fair line. It's, it's hard. It's a big fuzzy grey area in all of that, and that's that. Of course, is where half of these problems are, because now with all the culture wars and everything, we just have a bunch of wide fuzzy lines uh, and a bunch of people with very different conceptions of how far over you have to go before you cross the line. And, and, you know, that is the time that we're living in. And it's, it's, it, it is going to be constant struggle and, and constant battle, really, yeah. in, in those sorts of things. But unfortunately, I mean, she, she, she caught the sharp end of it because of the context. But I think she'll be back anyway. I, I think mm. she'll be out for a, a few years and then they'll bring her back. I think part of the struggle is, is for ordinary people like us is, is finding reliable channels of unbiased information and uh, non-partisan news i mean what advice would you give to someone who's looking at the internet looking at social media looking at youtube and and trying to find clear honest news in a way well it's tricky um i mean it, it depends on context because you know there's lots of different types of news you can be looking for um, what I, I tend to trust sources of information more when I see them being robust in the face of misinformation on both sides. So, for instance, with the, the whole climate change information thing, generally the vast majority of the scientists that I look at have huge integrity. And uh, today, for instance, I, there was um, – uh, several that, that were calling out somebody on the climate alarmist side and saying, no, 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 you know, this is misleading the information. And I see them regularly calling out on both sides. When they see misinformation, they say, no, that's wrong. You know, that's overclaiming the science or that's cherry picking or, or, or so on. And if they're prepared to call out on both sides, that at least means that they're not ideologically caught now, it doesn't mean to say that they can't make mistakes, but there's a difference between a bias that means that you automatically introduce a certain perspective on the world that leads you towards one side or the other, whether you realise you're doing that or not, whether it's intentional or not. Because a lot of the BBC bias, I just don't think it's intentional. I just live in a bubble. Yeah. <laughs> London bubble, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, the London lovey bubble, let's be more specific. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's very easy to see how... I mean, outraged they are when they're accused of, of, of something that, that has been biased. Um, and, and it's genuine outrage because that's, they don't, that's not how they view themselves. And, and, and that's fine. So it's, it's, it's not just enough that they have to be intentionally be aiming to deceive. It's a question of, well, what, what, what are the parameters for any particular one issue? And what clues can you get about original sources of information and, and, and how 
much integrity there is in what you're hearing to those original sources. So what I tend to do, if I if I deal with sciencey stuff in the videos, um, I will put the the original sources to the research that I'm quoting, so people can go and have a look for themselves to see if it says what it supposed to say and when i watch other people talking about those topics i will then try to trace their sources and there are certain people who are always bang on you know so uh Posola 54 who does climate change related stuff he's very strong on on the, the the climate change side but he does do some videos batting back against the 12 years to save the planet alarmist like yeah. overstatement stuff but when you check any of his sources, absolutely solid. He's a journalist uh, who has been dealing with science for many, many years. And what he quotes, when you check the sources, it's always backs up what he said. Whereas when you look at some of the others, so uh, Bjorn Lomborg um, is an interesting commentator in the climate area. He has some solid criticisms and some interesting points to, to take. Is this the, the sweet, is he a, the demographics guy? Yeah, the, the Swedish is sort of economist. It takes yeah. an economics approach to, to climate. Unfortunately, he does cherry pick. And unfortunately, sometimes when you check the sources that he quotes in support of something he says, you find that paper doesn't support that point at all. And it's annoying because he does sometimes make some very good, well-argued, you know, challenging points that are interesting and you, you, you want to explore them. But it just means you can't trust the veracity of what he says. You have to go back and double check. and So it takes three or four times longer to engage with his arguments than it would do than if you thought, okay, I, I trust this person. You know, if they say that you know, this happens, then I trust that that's what happens. So it is exhausting sometimes. And, and obviously I do all that because I do a channel and I'm then going to use that content on my own. If, if all you want to do is have a relatively straightforward news source that you can rely on, that is that is tricky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, the experts don't always agree. So who are you going to trust, really? I suppose if you're looking into scientific matters like climate change, we have the peer review system, which is one sort of safety net to filter out poor information but when it comes to news media i wonder if we could set up like a peer review system for news outlets <laughs> it'd be on that it's panel, interesting <laughs> it's interesting that the peer review system is under attack at the moment uh, partially because in the social sciences there's been a lot of research that has proven not to be reproducible and partially because certain people have gotten you know, we we have some we have some areas of study that are more robust than others, shall we say? <laughs> so some of the social sciences stuff, and and then people have gotten papers in talking about the rape culture in dog dog walking parks, yes, um, and and this sort of thing, which has then gone through the peer review to a social sciences journal, and then they've revealed that you know this was just. It was, it was a trolling As, campaign, wasn't it? Helen Helen yeah, Pluckrose, um, was it Daniel Bogdanovich? I think it's called. The yeah. team a team of three people, wasn't it? Who were that's right. That's right. Trolling the social and, sciences. And so some people will look at that now. If you're a climate skeptic and basically you want to believe that it's all rubbish, you then look at that sort of thing and you say, "Ah, oh, see, oh, the peer review system, it's worthless." And of course, uh, that's a real problem because. With the physical sciences and you know anything where you've got people 
a knowledgeable community that's looking at you know, how CO2 behaves in the atmosphere and how the different layers of the atmosphere work and how the energy balance. And that stuff is generally pretty solid. And he doesn't mean to say that mistakes will never, ever creep through. And he doesn't mean to say you couldn't end up with a little sort of clique effect where some people are a little bit less demanding of their, their buddies' papers than, than others. There are certain things that you need to pay attention to. But the idea that that discredits the entire peer review process as a quality control check, um, of course, is nonsense. And, and unfortunately, that is an argument that's gaining traction right now. And it's a, it's a challenge for science, not least because... I think you know, one of the dangers that you do have in the climate science area is that certain of the leading scientists have morphed into campaigners. And it's always dangerous to do that because the scientific mindset is always delighted when new evidence comes up, even if it challenges the orthodoxy. The more you get to being a campaigner, the more resistant you are to things that kick back against what you're campaigning for. And the danger is you become a better campaigner than you become a scientist. And if that starts to feed through into the, the system, then you get more and more people raising concerns that, well, maybe this is a rigged system. And every time I've looked at climate science papers, I don't see any evidence as a rigged system. And, and generally, the, the, the core science stands up in, incredibly strongly. But, of course, it's like justice. It's not only got to be fair, it's got to be seen to be fair. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a little bit of a crisis of confidence with, with the whole expert community, frankly, after um, COVID-19. But, but in that area, it's under heavy attack. And, and I'm not sure that people quite take it seriously enough yet. Um, but there is some merit to those attacks, even though it's quite wide of a mark on, on the basics. Well, what did you make of the, um, oh, what's he called? The guy who did the COVID prediction, Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson <laughs> modelling, which launched the lockdown. Yes. Um, there, obviously, this is, this is a story that's still unfolding. So when we have perfect 2020 hindsight, we will see some lessons that are not entirely clear to us now. We still don't really know what was the best strategy to undertake. We don't really know why Britain has performed so badly Various people said, oh, it's Boris's fault. And if we'd gone into lockdown a week earlier, then only two people would have died or something ridiculous. And you look at all the different countries that have, some that have done well, some that have done badly, and you look at the different variables, and very little of it adds up. I mean, it might be as much to do with population density and culture as anything, where you get very dense population centres um, and a culture where people are going to be less disciplined in the face of instructions. Mm. I think there's something like 27% of young adults owned up to not following the lockdown restrictions entirely strictly uh, in in the UK and, and, and certainly in Italy and Spain, the, the Latin cultures. It was some way in before they they really started to take it seriously that they couldn't hug and kiss each other anymore and all those sorts of things. But if you look at at, at those areas, I mean, New York and New Jersey were the ones that deaths per million of the population had been hit the worst. Very dense sense of population and pretty robust, you know, freewheeling cultures. Belgium was next 
Nobody ever talks about that. Belgium is the highest European country in terms of deaths per million population. And I can only think because it's a relatively small, densely populated country. That's an issue. And then us and, and us, you know, London was huge in that. And then some of the other big centres. And of course, governments can make it worse. And lots of governments sent people into old people's homes, care homes. You know, it happened in New York. It happened here. It happened in Sweden. Um, and, and that has been a, a, a disaster wherever they did that, of course. They partially did that because it was only late in the day we discovered that um, non-symptomatic, asymptomatic transmission was possible. Early on in, in the process, people assumed that it could only be transmitted if you had symptoms. And then at some point we realised, no, that wasn't the case. And then there was a, a lag between somebody realising that and that actually changing policy on the ground, which is what happens with big bureaucracies where they're not very efficient. And that is, you know, we all love our NHS and we all go there and we clap for them and the people in there are wonderful and so on. But bureaucracy is terrible, just like all big bureaucracies are. So it, there was a horrible lag between realising over here and then, and then policy on the ground, actually. Now, you can blame Boris for that if you want. I mean, you know, people who are against the government will blame them for whatever they can, and people who are for them will defend them whatever they can. The more you step back and you look at it, and this is the nonpartisan thing, and you look at what happened in Sweden, and they followed a different policy. You look at what happened in New York. You look at what's happening now in the southern states and the US. It's not at all obvious that policy, apart from New Zealand, where they were really quick and they had borders they could defend and they, they actually just really did get rid of the whole thing. It's not obvious that policy has made as much of a difference um, as people think that it should be. It seems that various other factors to do with demographic profiles, um, uh, population densities and, and certain other cultural factors like, um, you know, we, we, we know that obesity is a big thing and, and, and very few people are putting that in the data you know, very few people are saying, oh, yeah, the, the uh, ethnic minority people who are at greater risk. Very few of them are saying that actually a, a reason for that may well be because obesity is a bigger factor in those groups because it sounds disrespectful and they think they might get into trouble for it. <laughs> and so they just don't count it. They just don't record the data. Just like the mayor of New York said that they weren't going to ask people who got infected in the last few weeks whether they'd been to Black Lives Matter protests. They didn't want to know. Well, that's rubbish. Surely you want the data. Yeah. You know, how can you know what's really going on if you don't look at the data of what and what that tells you? If you say, oh, no, no, because of, because of our politics, we prefer that message not come out because it would be it would offend his community or, or our, our doctors all said it was okay for you to go out and protest Black Lives Matter in spite of the fact that everyone else was supposed to stay home and, and, and we don't want them being shown up. I mean, for goodness sake, that, that is the worst reason to not gather data because you're not prepared to look at what it tells you. And that is unfortunately uh, a lot of what we've seen. So the quality of data we've had throughout the whole coronavirus thing has been incredibly poor. Mm. That is going to really obstruct our ability to look back even in a year's time and thoroughly get the correct view because the virus doesn't care about your politics or you know anything. The correct view of, of what will be the optimum way to respond should it happen again.
which of course is what we should be doing. Yes, yeah. And there was a study came out, I think, last week or the week before, where they'd been testing sewage water in yes. this country and a couple of maybe in Italy as well, and, and they were finding yes. traces of the virus back in December, I think. Yes, so. it, it was it was far more widespread than people realised before we, we had heard of it. And, and this was one of the reasons why we got hit so hard. I mean, going back to Ferguson, this was what he said in his evidence to the um, select parliamentary select committee a few weeks ago, which was that we were seeded by Italians and Spaniards. And the thing is that we had hundreds arrive at once carrying the virus. So they'd started off by, oh, there's a case, quick, you know, let's contact trace it. There's a case, quick, let's contract. And then they suddenly realised, oh, crap, actually there's now thousands yeah. yeah, they came in their hundreds and now there's already thousands. So this this early whack-a-mole, um, actually, this is this is too late. It's sort of and, and that was that was when you had the big and, and then of course they produced the report saying half a million people will die, which of course was it, ca- it kind of wrong. suggests that a, a a New Zealand tactic would never have worked for us um, because it was no. too far too far gone. Before we realised, New Zealand tactic really was only going to work for New Zealand and maybe Australia, because you know they're actually quite a distance away from most of the people that would travel there and defending their borders as an island. And you know the people went there for tourism. London is a major financial centre, and there's just so much trade and traffic going backwards and forwards. It, New Zealand is struggling right now because they've got closed borders. They, they have an economy that was actually quite significantly based on tourism. And, you know, they've gotten over patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, we did it. No one else in the world has done what we did. But now they're saying, shit, what happens now? What next? Yeah. What, what you know, how long do we stay locked down? Because it, you know, the rest of the world is, you know, it's not going away and, and the virus isn't going away. So they're, they're struggling with that. And we could never have done that. Yeah, the dependency that we have, as connected as we are to Europe and to America and to Asia, uh, we couldn't have survived for, for two minutes in, in that sort of situation. So ultimately, it was going to run its course. I, 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 if we'd locked down a week earlier, I don't think it would have made that much difference. And if it, And if it had then maybe when we started to relax lockdown, then we would have gotten the second wave because it seems to be, you know, if you had it, had, if you had it run the course, then generally it hasn't come back. London hasn't seen a resurgence. Um, whereas now, you know, the American states that have got the upswing are the ones that didn't have it first time round. You know, you're not seeing it in New York. New York had the pain and then and now it's not getting it back again so whether or not that was just something and and the, the good news is that herd immunity seems therefore to be achieved at a much lower level than the epidemiologists were saying it would be they were all saying we well, have to have at least 60 to 70 percent of people catching these things before you get herd immunity and yet we've got nowhere near that people. in london and in uh, most of the other places that are not seeing a, a second wave. People don't seem to realise that herd immunity is a scale. It's not like you get to 60%, 70% and then it cuts off. There are benefits no, right. at 30 40 
And the thing that seems to be coming to fore is is the idea that, well, actually, there's, there's, there's a bunch of people who are just resistant to it. Um, they're not necessarily immune, but, but they're, they're, they're more resistant. So once you add them into the mix, then actually you can end up more or less trending towards herd immunity at a, a much lower level of antibodies uh, when you test for them than, than they thought would be the case, which is which is good news, let's face it. Um, but that sort of then changes the equation of, well, how much difference would it have made if we'd done this rather than that? Uh, if ultimately, at the end of the day, what you have to get to in the areas where there's dense population, you know, I live in the middle of nowhere, you know, different rules are going to apply here just because people are not crossing each other's path very much. But in London, in Birmingham, in New York, in Stockholm, maybe you just have to get through it. Mm. Yeah, which um, is what Neil Ferguson said: you must not let happen. Of course, and this is the problem. You know, he had a model that didn't have anything built in in terms of natural resistance because we didn't know. It wasn't his fault. He, he, you know, he modelled the worst case scenario because that might well have been what we were facing. We didn't know. Clearly, it's not. I mean, you have to sympathise to an extent because if he underpredicts the pandemic and it turns That's out right. a lot worse, I mean, the, the guy's going to be dragged yeah. through the streets and hung, drawn and quartered probably, isn't he? Absolutely. So they, Absolutely. they have to be ultra cautious, don't they? Otherwise, they're going to get it in the neck. <laughs> yes. And, and the problem is, of course, that actually locking down also has consequences and victims. It's just that they're, in, they're invisible uh, in many ways. Uh, there will be lots of people dying because they weren't getting treatment for cancer or whatever, or they didn't go to the doctor when they first had symptoms and so on. None of them will be recorded as consequences of the lockdown, and and we can only speculate, therefore, at those numbers. Um, And, of course, the economic damage we're going to be living with quite some time to come and it, yeah, really over the next few months we, it's just going to we've got a downward spiral to go through before we we start picking up again um, unfortunately the pub's opening doesn't on doesn't solve it on its own sad sad though that may be so so yeah and of course that's not factored into any of the models either uh-huh. you know if you had a model that was saying which is the least harm policy maybe it would have been lock down the, the care homes, lock down the hospitals, you know, lock down the, the uh, fragile uh, people with pre-existing conditions and then let everyone else sex, drugs and rock and roll, mate. <laughs> you know. That's a vote winner. That, <laughs> it's your duty. Get out of there. Sex, drugs and rock and roll. Well, Up until the point where you catch the disease and you can stop, <laughs> obviously. I was reading that in, that a lot of the uh, the second surge or second wave in the states tends to be from the younger generation, people in their twenties and thirties, and that this could actually be yes. a good thing. This second wave that's happening in some of the other states in the in the US. It, it could be, except that you you've got to assume that the the younger people who catch it initially, lots of them will be asymptomatic. How could it possibly not be the case that then? some of that gets passed on to the older group. I mean, obviously, hopefully they have learned the lessons about the care homes, but nevertheless, surely this will then start to feed through and then you'll start to see death rates pick up a little bit. And, and you do have to then ask, well, how, how, did it, how did it end up targeting this younger group? You know, I, 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 I still ask the question about the Black Lives Matter protests because, you know, A, it was 
I mean, I, you know, and, and of course, everyone thought that what happened with George Floyd was was horrendous. And the basic principle, if you don't look at the organisation with its leftist baggage, if you just look at the, the, the basic guttural, oh, my God, this should not happen, you know, and, and really, this has happened too often. You know, of course, everyone supported that as, as a basic principle. But at the time when everyone's locked down, and you had all these epidemiologists and medical professionals saying, well, you know, yeah, you should stay home. But, you know, anti-racism is bad as well. So, so you know, we're not going to criticise that. And you think, you can't have it both ways. So, of course, in New York and all these other places where they've had the problem high, you haven't seen a spike. It was no problem. But, of course, where you hadn't seen that, then suddenly lots of young people are starting to get it can't have been helpful, surely, to have lots of young people all coming together, not social distancing. Many of them were wearing masks. Quite a few of them weren't. But nevertheless, getting very close and shouty and, and occasionally burning things downy and all sorts. You know, really, are we just going to say, yeah, well, yeah, there's a pandemic, but hey, we believe in the cause. So, yeah, off you go. But you Trumpers, you know, don't you go having rallies or, or, or having protests uh, then we'll start talking about what a dreadful risk you are to society. And then you wonder why America is so polarised and why the Trump election happened in the first place, you know, why a whole group of people became disillusioned with the experts and the elites and the people who know better when they can look at something where it's patently being one one thing for them and one thing for, for the rest. And that's, that was so damaging. But how did we end up with all these young people getting infected? Now, of course, lots of people were there. Well, yeah, well, they 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 locked, they relaxed lockdown too early, and all these young people went, you know, cavorting uh, on the beach and, and and in the bars. And that may well be it. Maybe um, you know, old duffers having beer in American bars wasn't a thing. I would have thought it would be a thing, but but cavorting is definitely more risky. So there probably weren't that many old people cavorting because let's face it. People, once you get to my age, you know, you don't have as much energy for that sort of thing as you used to have. Yeah, but that's um, why the care home problem happened. <laughs> it could well be. All the cavorting, yeah, actually. But he's right, because if I, if, if I get put into a care home, I'm pretty sure that my one avenue of, process, of protest would be a bit of cavorting, surely. Absolutely. I have something to look forward to, at least. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So anyway, I, who knows? Who knows? And the trouble is, of course, they're not asking the questions, so we will never get the data and we'll never know for sure. And that means one side will be positive certain that it all happened because of the other side and vice versa, which yeah. there you go. It's probably always going to happen because we're in an election year. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, you're right about the hypocrisy. I mean, we, we saw this with Cambridge University recently, didn't we, with that uh, professor. What did she say? Was it white lives don't matter? Yes. And abolish yeah. whiteness or something. Yeah. And uh, Cambridge University came out and, and defended her, her right to free speech. As and they you, should have. And you're reading that and thinking, whoa, where were you last year when Jordan when you kicked Jordan Pearson, Peterson out? Well, exactly. Well, and, exactly. And they've doubled down again this week because they've got rid of David yes. Starkey. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and it's such nonsense, really, because, I mean, what he said was... was he was in full flow and it was, it was just a figure of speech. And 
you know, even if you can tut tut at it and you can say, oh, he's a bit of an old racist and so on, does that actually mean you have to throw him out of every single job that he's got? Really, have, have we got to the stage where the fact that there are millions of people in the country who are not woke enough for the standards of today? Are you really cancelling everyone who says a, a passing thing when they're talking about Is that where we are? Because... Ultimately, who really? I mean, they can't even find a host for the Oscars because they can't find anyone who stands up to scrutiny enough. So, no wonder they can't find a statue of anyone who who is uh, you know pure enough to be allowed to stand. I, I mean, really, none of us. What they say? Yet, yet, let he who is without sin <laughs> cast the first exactly. stone. It's your favourite quote exactly. from the Bible, Ben, in it. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the worry for me is is that, I mean, personally, I quite like David Starkey. I like the fact yes. that he's brash and blunt and he, you know, he tends to insult people from time to time. But I think if we get rid of everyone like him, we're sort of diluting our culture and sanitising it. And, you know, I want to yes. hear interesting voices. Yes. Yes, and... I think, by and large, where where people aren't dependent on institutions, they can do that. So Douglas Murray, you know, has said that you know he he can say what he wants um, because he writes books and you know writes for the Spectator, and they're not going to cancel him. Whereas anyone who's tied to an academic institution, you know, anyone who works for a bureaucracy or or a corporation or any of these people. They can't because those all, those institutions fold like a house of cards at the first sign of any pressure. Well, Douglas um, Murray has to be careful because Harper Collins um, dropped David Starkey as well, his book publisher. Yeah, well, I, I think I mean Douglas Murray chooses his words fairly carefully, anyway. But um, I think you know, he's, if, if his publisher was prepared to publish his his last book, which basically went after every woke. <laughs> theme yeah. you know one after the other and, and and systematically demolished them i think he's pretty secure uh based on the sorts of things that he's likely to say but you know what he's saying well, he couldn't say any of that if he was dependent on an academic post and you should be able to surely surely academic tenure that's kind of what that's meant to be for yeah you know that you then get academic freedom to to, to go where you want yeah and push the boundaries Absolutely. Yeah, but our, our boundaries and, and, and of free defended. our boundaries of free speech seem to be getting narrower and narrower every few years. They they have been. I think we're reaching a tipping point where the fight back is coming out of the shadows. So I think with the Black Lives Matter thing and the trans thing with J.K. Rowling and so on, I think now we are starting to get more people who are willing to stand up, people of substance like J.K. Rowling, and say, well, actually, I know the consequences of this are going to be loud and and I'm going to sustain some damage, but do you know what? At some point you have to draw a line in the sand and we're now reaching that point. I I just get a sense that we're we're starting to see that. And, you know, some of the people who got cancelled recently over anything vaguely... Uh, not even dodgy that they said, because most of it wasn't. But in, in the immediate aftermath of the Black Lives Matter, the, the George Floyd protest, you know, I did a little roll call on one, one of my videos where it just rattled through about 20 people who had been sacked that week. And some of them have now 
been fought and have been reinstated. You know, Stu Peters on Manx Radio, who's a talk radio host. I mean, they're meant to be controversial, you know, <laughs> having vigorous debate as kind of a whole point of them. And and so the fact that he was reinstated and, and the fact that, you know, the free speech union has been set up by Toby Young and, and that's fighting cases and winning quite a lot of... I just think maybe the time has come where actually people are going to start saying, mm, do you know what? We've gone too far. We need to rein this back in. Right? You know, the trans thing, the, the, the law was going to be changed that if I told you halfway through this broadcast that I now identified as a woman, you know, you would be deeply offending me if you didn't turn on a dime and say, we now adapt to your new reality. And, you know, the government has now said, actually, we don't think we will pass that. Mm. And, and you just start to see, oh, okay. And, and people are now pushing back and not just on the fringes, but now institutions and people with things to lose are being prepared to stand up and be counted. Is it going to be enough? I don't know, because the woke brigade are so in charge of the academic institutes and, 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 and the media, the mainstream media generally. And Sil- so Silicon it, Valley as well. Silicon Valley, absolutely. Um, so it's going to be bloody and, and awful for the next decade, I think how this plays out. There's couldn't th- predict how that's going to go. No. There is a bit of a movement. Do you f- f- foresee um, a shift to alternative social media, such as Parler and the likes? Yeah, I mean, Parler isn't that alternative. I mean, it's just it's just another flavour of Twitter and people will gravitate towards their favourite ones. If you look at the terms of use for parlor they're, they're no different at the end of the day they, they reserve a right to throw you off a platform if you uh, get too out of hand and and logically you have to if you if you are a platform you have to draw certain lines because you know, obviously if, if somebody threatens violence against somebody and so on most people would agree that that's beyond the pale so you've identified there's a line you then just have to debate where the line gets drawn Parler is really exactly like Twitter, except that you can do longer posts. And at the moment, the people on the right are gathering there. And, the, you know, the people on the left uh, have almost complete control of Twitter. Not that, you know, they have exclusive use of it, but, but when you get a Twitter storm, it tends to be the people on the left, uh, the, the intersectional left uh, that, that are doing all, all of that side. And it's it's not really that much alternative. It's just if people clustering with their mates. Yeah. You know, the, the, the whole ideal of the internet was that people were going to suddenly be more connected. And so they would be sharing with people who are different to them and they'd be learning about each other and their differences. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> it sounds like we could end up with Twitter being essentially dominated by the left and Paula dominated by the right. And then no one will talk to each other and we'll end up even more polarised. Well, I mean, they don't talk to each other now, so it won't be that different. <laughs> I mean, they've just been in in each in the corner in the corners of Twitter. The only difference is that Twitter, Twitter, the company has a number of the left people, staff, and quite senior staff. So you know, when they slap on a, a, some sort of impediment to Donald Trump's tweets, but they're not doing it on the other side. Some of whom are saying even more outrageous things, 
Uh, then, of course, people start to notice that it's not an even-handed thing. So Parler, of course, its USP to its audience is we're going to be the other way at the very least. Um, so that's fair enough. That, that, that's, that's the free market for you. Yeah. Yeah, people will gather where they are most comfortable, and, and, and that's not the end of the world, I suppose. Um, but, it, yeah, it... So from my point of view, I, I, I have all sorts of problems with YouTube because, because I try to be non-partisan, I am actively subscribing to different perspectives. And it doesn't half send the YouTube algorithm into a tizzy because it has no idea what the hell I want. <laughs> you know, it's used to feeding people more and more of what they want. And this, of course, is part of the polarizing thing because it's they're trying to hold you, their business model is they try to hold you on the platform for as long as they can. So they show you the more interesting stuff, and the more interesting stuff tends to be the more extreme stuff, which is what we've seen. People who are sort of centre-right see things that get angrier and angrier and gradually they drift further and further to the right. Or if they're centre-left, they drift further and further to the left. And it's just the algorithm showing them stuff that's compelling. That's all it's doing. It's not intending to radicalise people. It's showing them stuff that's compelling. And that tends to then push people out of the middle. Now, of course, I'm trying to look at what everyone's doing because that's part of, if you hear the best arguments of both sides, you know, at least you're straw manning the thing that you, you believe because you're hearing the best arguments against it and you're listening to them carefully trying to see, okay, you know, is there a good point there? Does that actually challenge the, the, this central proposition? But the algorithm doesn't know what to do with that because sometimes it thinks, okay, well, show him Ben Shapiro. And they said, no, 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 show him Extinction Rebellion. How the hell can he want to watch both of these things? <laughs> Uh, probably a fair question <laughs> are you optimistic oh. oh sorry go on Matt no I was just wondering you know do you think that YouTube has any sort of responsibility for kind of uh, contributing towards this like lack of debate I suppose when people kind of go down that wormhole of everything getting a little bit more extreme a little bit more extreme because it's just tapping into that kind of interest ultimately it is difficult but they, but it is, but it is their responsibility. Yes, I mean the thing, the thing that they didn't realise. So, having done the corporate social responsibility thing, I've, I've seen this in that there are certain types of companies where the, the, the standard commercial rules don't quite apply. They, they sort of do apply, but there's a limit. So, if I sell widgets, then the more widgets I sell, the more profit I make. I can't sell too many widgets. More is good. Even more is even better. If I sell cigarettes, tobacco, if I sell alcohol, if, I, if I'm a gambling company, then that, that isn't quite the same because I can sell, the, the more I sell, the more profit I make up until the point where I'm selling so much that I'm creating a social problem. And at that point, my license to operate at all starts to come under fire. So governments take an interest in, well, how cheap is this alcohol being sold? Is this feeding binge drinking? You know, or can we shut down the tobacco companies because people are dying and all these sorts of things? So those companies have to f manage a very difficult balance where obviously the market mechanisms still apply. They still make more profit, the more they sell. But they have to judge this other factor, which is we're not allowed to be too successful. 
you know, if we can't diversify into something that doesn't have this negative thing, you know, which the tobacco companies are now trying to do with vaping and all that side of it, if we don't have a strategy that could actually sidestep this problem, then we have to manage this. We have to be as successful as possible. We have to steal as much market share off the other people as possible without creating an overall social bad. Now, the the internet companies, the, the YouTubes and the Facebooks of this world, they never realised that they were in that category. And to be fair, none of us realised they were in this category until we started to see some of these consequences. You know, giving people stuff they find interesting how can that be bad? And now we know how that can be bad. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, I, I don't blame them for that. I don't blame them for getting us here. But but you will blame them if they now don't rise to the challenge of what has been created. And um, and and it's not an easy one, you know, absolutely hands up. I think Facebook has actually been one of the better ones on this. I think Zuckerberg is absolutely right on the political speech thing to say we sh- tech companies like us shouldn't be in the business of deciding which political speech is or isn't valid. Look Who are we to make that decision? And he's right. Well, what's happened to him, though? Zuckerberg making that decision. But, but then, of course, now we have the left are censoring tweets and cancelling people who say the wrong thing on Twitter, and and they're getting channels cancelled on YouTube. YouTube has purged a number of uh, extreme channels, and they were all on. As far as I know, I don't know. If, I don't know this for a fact, but certainly all the ones I heard about were, were only on one side of the the spectrum. So people are seeing their successes in there, and they're saying, "Well, we're not going to let Facebook not take their share of of this action." Uh, and and yeah. As we as we are in a U.S. election year, it's all going to get very pointy. Well, Facebook have been punished by Zuckerberg's decision because a laundry list of major companies yeah. came out recently and said we're suspending all advertising uh, spending yes. on Facebook. So it's hitting them month. in the profit for a month. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, what, what's what's Zuckerberg knows that the what's Facebook's revenue back? for a month? I mean, it's not yeah. small beans, well, yeah. is it? Mm. It's, I mean, I mean the vast amount of their advertising comes from smaller operations and so on. The big corporations, nevertheless, are a substantial slice as well. They know that they will come back so long as they do a few things because that's what happened with YouTube. YouTube, there was a big problem. It's in all the mainstream press. The Times went after them big. They came up with some new policies. They banned a couple of people and then the advertisers went back. Facebook knows that, you know, it could do a few things just enough, and the advertisers will come back. The advertisers are just covering their backs. They don't want people going after them, saying, how dare you advertise next to this person. Yeah, it's a PR uh, And they PR just want to know. Sorry? It's a PR exercise on their behalf to an extent. I don't think it's totally lacking substance, but they will do as little as they have to before the advertisers will come back. Um and I think genuinely there's a good argument for that. I mean, advertisers got a right not to have their adverts appearing next to genuinely objectionable stuff. But if you look at the campaigners who are pursuing this campaign, the coalition of, uh, 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 what was it called? Um, something about, something saying hate. How hate speech is being defined. You know, it's a bit of a movable feast, and you know, if you're not careful, basically hate speech gets defined as being the other political position. <laughs> and yeah, 
this is a, this is a, a shark infested swamp of a place to be. <laughs> well, on that note, shall we wrap <laughs> shall we wrap up on the swamp infested uh, shark <laughs> nest or whatever? It was? I always try and finish there if I can. <laughs> <laughs> right, anything to add, boys? Uh, no, no, that's fantastic. Thanks very much, Malin. That's um, that's very informative and a, a great chat. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, well, you're very welcome. It's, it's been a great discussion. I've hugely enjoyed it. Thanks very much for inviting me. You're more than welcome. Thanks very much for your time. We'll see you next week, Eve Droppers. Uh, Carl Littlerud next week, isn't it? I think so. I hope so. so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, don't forget, Eve Droppers, links in the description. You want to find Malin's uh, YouTube channel, his social media. Um, Patreon as well. You have a Patreon account, don't you? For supporters, yeah, so just, um, to, just to cover all those uh, YouTube demonetization. Videos, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> okay, we'll see you next week. Cheers, ta-ta. Bye for now. Bye bye. Wakanda forever. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> uh, we talked about um, David Starkey. I've got the clip, if you're interested to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit... In, did, you, because did, it, did you hear, it? hear it? I didn't hear it, no. I've read it, and out of context, it does sound a bit... I was, sorry, I want you to hear it in context, because out of context, it does sound quite bad. Oh, well, this sorry. sort of starts with the statement. So. Oh, right. <laughs> See what okay. you make of it. Slavery was not genocide. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many damn blacks in Africa or in Britain, would there? You know, an awful lot of them survived. Um, and uh, what it, what, what again? There's no point in arguing against globalization or Western civilization. They are all products of it. We are all products of it. The honest teaching of the British Empire is to say, quite simply, it is the first key stage of world globalization. It's probably the most important moment in human history, and it is still with us. Its consequences are still on, and generally speaking, in most ways, actually fruitful. There are downsides, again, as the Brexit vote demonstrated. So that's how you go about tackling it. And as for the idea, as I said, that slavery is this 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 kind of terrible disease that dare not speak its name. It only dare not speak its name, Darren, because we settled it nearly 200 years ago. We don't normally go on about the fact uh, that Roman Catholics once upon a time didn't have the vote and weren't allowed to have their own churches because we had Catholic emancipation. And do you know what? We had Catholic emancipation at pretty much exactly the same time that we got rid of slavery in the 1830s. Mm -hmm. We don't go on about that. It's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? I think, personally, there's a difference between... if He's using that kind of analogy, isn't he, or whatever, between um, Catholicism and slavery. But I think the issue with the slavery thing is, is that was mainly or totally people taken from Africa, wasn't it, black people? And I, I think it's naive to say there isn't an ongoing issue with racism. Um, there's probably still an ongoing issue, um, but probably in my kind of feeling to a lesser extent of, um, I suppose, ill feeling towards Catholic people as well or whatever. What's it called? What? Sectarianism? You, uh, sectarianism, yeah. That's still an ongoing issue, isn't it, in some places. But I'd probably say that racism was... Northern, Northern Ireland? Yeah, I know, Any yeah, bomb? but the, uh, but it's not. I don't think it's just there, is it? You know? No, certainly not. No. Um, but I suppose I think personally, I think racism is probably a, a bigger issue. I don't know, or is that yeah. because it's talked about more? Oh, I don't know. I, I think his his main gripe is is that is the comparison between slavery and genocide, and his tone is what, sort sorry, of sorry. Sorry, is, is is that what he's is he? Is, is he disagree? That's what made a comparison between slavery and genocide, and he's disagreeing with that. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, and it's almost an exasperated tone. It strikes me out, and that's mm. why he says so many damn blacks, because he's he's it's almost mockery. He's almost mockery in the the theory that there's there's some sort of plurality plurality between slavery and genocide when they're completely two different things, and I think it's mm. a bit of exasperation. That's coming out in his language. Context is never questioned there in these in these matters. Like with not. a tweet or an email, there's no context in that, and that's fine. Well, it's not fine, but it's um, 
there's no innate context in a tweet or an email or, or a post or whatever online, but in a conversation, you can clearly hear that as aspiration. I mean, to me, I've only ever heard David Starkey sound like that, so maybe he's just in a calm, calm, collective manner. So there's no, there's no kind of, we didn't hear before, we didn't hear what kind of day you'd had, and I know that's no excuse and, and whatnot, and you have to check yourself or you end up wrecking yourself. Uh, and in this case, that seems to be what, what's happened, but the, the context in all these things really deserves to be looked at it, at the very least, just just look at it. Ask the question: it, it, mm. Is is David Starkey really a racist? For instance, and I'm not saying there is or isn't. He could be a huge racist. I mean, it might be like that Father Ted episode where he opens his his cupboard and it's just all of Nazi memorabilia. <laughs> but <laughs> but he might not. I, and you know who knows who's asking how he's feeling about it now who's you know there's not none of those questions are asked at the end of the day you know he's he's just another person like us all i I watched the whole thing the whole 50 minute video oh is he a massive racist (laughs) no i mean it was standard it was a standard david starkey performance that's how that's what he's like he's very passionate and um opinionated but that's why i find him interesting and entertaining doesn't mean that i have to agree with everything he says it's just you know he's a good orator he's incredibly eloquent yeah i think the is uh the phrasing damn blacks was a poor choice i think personally yeah absolutely um you can't say that no and it, it, with it coming out so kind of naturally, is that the kind of thing that he would just use in, in everyday parlance? And, you know, you could argue that, oh, he's old. Silly old David Starkey. <laughs> Get him back in the back car. Back to home. bed, David. Come on. Yeah. Time for your meds. Yeah. But, but, I mean, you know, this day and age, there's no there's no bandwidth for that in the, uh, in the mind of those who are... Um, quick to jump on these sorts of things but the other thing as well is that uh, if you if you want to tackle racism then people need to sort of i suppose um be exposed to different kinds of points of view and different ways of expressing themselves mm-hmm. um and you can't just get rid of everybody that's ever done or said anything <laughs> racist because there's loads of them basically <laughs> And is, is it not about sort of giving a person the opportunity to change? We views? don't have, this is the biggest problem is we've no road to reformation or reconciliation. Mm. People get lifetime bans. So Katie Hopkins, you know, you might think she's a fucking vile creature, whatever, but there's no route back. There's no mm. way of her to reform and come back. She's permanently banned. Yeah, but I think she's a bit of a bad example in that she, I think she... She's not the only one, though. Well, no, yeah, but she is in that I personally think that she would say anything that would cause outrage, basically, and that's her modus operandi. That's how she, that's what she's known for, and that's what she makes money out of. I don't think that that's her particular views on anything. She's a, she just says it. 
yeah, she, generate she's, clicks. She's a merchant of outrage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a bad example. Still talk about it. It is a bad example, but there will be other people on the spectrum oh, yeah. who've, who've had a fairly unblemished life on social media, and then they will make one comment, one tweet, like the wrong one, post. One, I think one of them was it not that we talked about this ages ago. That girl, I think she said something pretty bad. Some sort of used some racist terms. That were pretty. Was bad. she going on a flight? She, I don't know. I think she basically she was. It was something to do with she'd been take got this chance to shadow or have an internship oh, yeah, with NASA. a police. No, it was NASA wasn't it? <laughs> well, oh, no, no. <laughs> this is another one, but the one I'm oh, thinking yeah. of is the one. It was a police crime commissioner, and basically they vetted oh, her. Yeah, and it was she came up fine, but then somebody went on a way back machine and found a Twitter account, and she'd said. Like, I don't know, she's used, like, the N-word or something when she was 13 on Twitter. And she was, like, 17 now. But there's no chance for that person to change and grow and, you know, mature, basically, and actually realise, you know, it's not appropriate to use those words. And, you know, and then she's basically been tarnished, hasn't she? She's lost out on that opportunity. Right. 13, though. String the parents up. <laughs> <laughs> This is a problem That's with doing it retrospectively, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know. you know what there's a gap in the market for? And I was thinking this when Malin was talking earlier. Some kind of woke insurance for celebrities <laughs> and personalities. <laughs> whereby you give me lots of money a month, and if you – we'll have a look. Well, maybe there's a PR, a PR wing of this company that will have a look and, and uh, you know, uh, strike any odd tweets from the record. Uh, but yeah, keep paying your premium, and if you say something untowards, we'll uh, we'll cover your your salary for till it all blows over. <laughs> I bet you any money there is people are insured against that kind of stuff. There must be as soon as it started happening, it's, it yeah. becomes a a, a um, oh, what is it uh, occupational hazard. Yeah, so I bet you people like you know I'm sure Page Three models had their boobs insured, haven't they, and things like that. <laughs> If it ever have it happens to what they make money out of. Is that even still a thing? Page three models. So um, just in case you have racist boobs. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um there's been another big story this week. Gislaine. Oh, oh yeah. Gislaine uh, uh, did not kill herself. Gislaine Maxwell is on suicide watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the feds have pulled her in. Yeah. What do you think is gonna happen? She's going to sing like a canary. <laughs> Plea down her to him. Yeah. Do you think they'll let her? I don't know. Yeah, that's the other thing. The, isn't the, it? the Illuminati not come after her. Well, there's been there's been reports from like her friends who say she's not going to say anything. She's definitely what? not going to say anything. Is that Prince Andrew protecting? Is that Prince yeah. Andrew coming out and saying that? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I bet but he's yeah, sweating uh, now, isn't he? She's in the photos, isn't she, with him, with that girl? Well, she was, she, it seems, well, this is all allegedly, it doesn't, isn't it? But it seems like she was like the fixer. Like she used to. Allegedly. Yeah, that's what, yeah, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) She used to find these girls and sort of groom them and she was like the the good cop. (laughs) Allegedly. Yeah. Oh, it reverses each time you say it. It's like Uno or (laughs) Shithead. Number one. 
Yeah. Have you have you watched the documentary about him on Netflix? Oh, I didn't know there was one. Yeah, it's it's okay. I wouldn't say it's like amazing. How um, old is it? Recent, I think. Right. Recent. Uh, sometime this year, the the woman, the blonde woman, I can't remember her name, who accused Prince Andrew. I think I think she's the one who said that she had sex with him or some you know, and then they have like oh, um, some kind of electrician. So did you say something? Then it cut off. Just allegedly. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, I've got you six. Yeah. Thanks. Um, they have an electrician who's um, worked on his Bahamas compound or something, telecommunications, wow. something like that saying about people that he saw there, like Bill Clinton. and But he says that he saw, um, he said, not us, he saw Prince Andrew and that blonde woman having sex in a pool or something. Oh, my wow. God. He says it on the documentary. Um, uh, oh, Bill Clinton's had, like, 26 flights on the Lolita oh, Express. Yeah. Well, they, they did, um, yeah, they talk about that quite a lot, about um, some work in Africa they did together. Um, they flying backwards and forwards on his plane quite a lot. Oh, well, there was some sort of philanthropic yeah. mission to Africa. It's the Clint- Clinton Foundation, is it called? Oh, yeah, the Clinton Foundation. Oh, we're going to have to ask the odd... Oh. oh, when's the odd man coming back? It's next month, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yeah. God, I oh, bet yes. odd man's nuts deep in all this shit. <laughs> Yeah, because we know a lot about the Clinton Foundation mm. with Haiti and whatnot. But yeah, I oh, think yeah. Uh, Kevin Spacey was involved in that mission. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, a real the, who's who. Oh, you look at the flight manifest. You've got you got Jay Z, Beyonce, Will Smith. Oh God, right. I just name three black people. Can't do that. Can I? Uh, Kevin Spacey. Cancel it out. <laughs> Cancel it. <laughs> um, yeah, Bill Gates, um, Jim Carrey. Right. Um, do, do you think some of them will be doing humanitarian work though and not know about <sighs> God I hope so Bill Murray Bill Murray's on the flight manifest yeah but the so, thing is is you, you, you've got to the way it was sort of it got the impression in the documentary was that this was very much his fetish was that basically he wanted young girls to come and massage him and then wank him off, or then he would then try and um, allegedly have sex with him or whatever. Jim Carrey. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> well, the um, problem is you, but, have, you end up with guilt by association, don't you? Yeah, and I think the other thing is as well that he, he obviously starts to surround himself with these people because like, it makes him more likely that nobody's going to touch him. But what was quite interesting is where his money came from. Um, it sounds like he's always been a bit of a, a fraudster, mm. uh, or was always a fraudster, I should say now. How did, um, how did he get so rich? Um, banking, originally. It, basically, it sounds like, if I remember it correctly, he went to a university. I, I think he might have dropped out, and then he somehow bagged a job as a college professor assistant professor <laughs> with four, without having the qualifications to do so and then he got a job in a some kind of banking company 
um, off the back of some connections he made. And then um, they subsequently found out that he'd lied about his, on his application about his experience and stuff. And this guy sort of talks about it and says, yeah, I, I, I decided to give him the benefit of the doubt because he was really good at what he did mm. and kept him on kind of thing. But then he, they fell out and then he went to go and he worked with the guy, a man who owns, um, I think he was a billionaire who owned, um, one of the things he owned was Victoria's Secret. And I think he made a lot of money from that, but he owned other kinds of things as well. And he managed his money. But what the kind of allegedly, the kind of intimate in the documentary is that he sort of ingratiated himself with this older gentleman and may or may not have been his lover and basically learned loads of stuff that you could blackmail him with. And this guy paid him off like $500 million or something. Do you know, I was saying, I was just going to say that the conspiracy theory is, is Mm. that he made his money and got these jobs through blackmail. Yeah. Using these, these, these illicit activities that he's been involved in and that you would, you would draw high powered people to your Island Get them right, in compromising okay. positions, right? To insulate yourself and uh, mm. provide well, yourself a living. They talk a lot about um, some kind. Is the the attorney general of Florida or kind of a some kind of attorney? Is that what they call attorney? Not attorney. Call attorney generals the people like the elected people that decide you know who gets charged with what and whatnot in the state or whatever district attorney yeah that's it um i think he was like the miami one and they cut a deal with him originally before he got arrested the second time and anyway this guy who cut the deal with him ended up being uh, working in the trump administration um and was fired for something i don't know if it was to do with um him or something else. I can't remember now. Mm. But it's all kind of really dodgy. I mean, there are links with Trump, aren't there? Um, but as far as I'm yeah. aware, I believe Trump severed ties around 2007. But I could be wrong. No, in the mid-90s, I think it was. Was it the mid-90s? Right, I thought it was the noughties. Yeah. He'd like to make a big play, or he likes to make, make a big play, doesn't he, on this, this is quote in a book saying that he noticed that he liked young girls and he didn't want anything to do with him. But mm. apparently it was more to do with uh, a falling out on, on business deals or something. Yeah. Um, do you think he killed himself? <laughs> yeah, I do. In the, in the way the documentary sort of puts it, basically what he's done is two days before he killed himself, he tied up his estate in a trust Um so that it'd be virtually impossible or very, very difficult for all these people who are coming out of the woodwork to make claims against the estate for his money. And I think he's killed himself and done that and, and personally planned it all. What, what, who's the beneficiary of the estate? Um, his brother was his brother. the sole beneficiary. Um, yeah. Um, but it, I think it's been tied up in some kind of really complicated trust that he's not really got any control over it or something either. Right. So was his brother involved in the business then? Not that they mentioned. Right. There wasn't really any, that much mention of him in the documentary. 
Wow. Just um, more towards the end, yeah, saying that he was he was the sole beneficiary, but then he changed it to this trust arrangement, um, so that he couldn't be, they couldn't go after the money as yeah. easily. But the thing is, is what tends to be with people who abuse people, it tends to be the feeling of power, and um, the the only control he had, I suppose, at that point was he probably he knew he was going he was indicted with on life sentences, I think. For rape and people trafficking and whatever, oh, but it would have been a license. It would have been, yeah, yeah. So um, his only control there is to take his own life and then fuck over all the people that he's messed around with by saying, "Right, you're not going to get my money either," kind of thing. Wow, it's interesting. Well, we'll, mm. we'll wait to see what happens with Gisline. Do you think he killed himself? Uh, if I had to put money on it now, no. Mm. All right, okay. There's a lot no, of... you do. You do. What? So you, you, you don't think he killed himself? No. Right, okay. If I had to make a decision right now, I would say no. Right. There's some what weird... You, ben? Sorry. Ben's, uh... Ben's working. <laughs> He's answering <Sorry>. emails. <laughs> uh, the, uh... No, I don't... I don't the penny's he... blue. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he killed himself. I think there is some sort of foul. Really? Yeah. Whether it's yeah. like as as black and white as someone going in and shiving him, or whatever. Um, I don't know. The Illuminati. Whatever. What? I don't think that. I don't, it's somewhere between that craziness and and him actually killing himself. There was some about weirdness, Sorry, wasn't there? About did the security cameras fail on that day? And well, no. Exactly. Uh, no, no, no. Not exactly. Not, no. <laughs> the, the place he was sent to is supposed to be a like a maximum, you know, security, whatever, holding jail. Um, but in reality, it'd been underfunded for 20 odd years. Right. Um, the guards were asleep. Um, there wasn't <laughs> enough of them. And the cameras hadn't been working for ages, basically. Right. I mean, what I could probably find more believable rather than someone going in and strangling him is um, potentially getting the guards to look the other way while someone had a word with him and say, kill yourself or something. I don't know. Wow. Okay. Something like that. What do you think someone actually went in and strung him up? Yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> He probably, I don't. He probably wasn't hanged. Right. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's weird, isn't it? Because he, he's obviously he, such a person of power. Um, I mean, probably the most rational explanation is it, it is it, it is a failing of the system that he was allowed to kill himself due to underfunding. But that's mm-hmm. boring. <laughs> I'm leaving yeah. open the possibility. Mm. <sighs> a lot of powerful people connected to him, you know. Uh, we know that leaders bump people off. This is nothing new. And, you know, would would people in America be uh, beyond that? I don't think so. I suppose you could, possible. You, could add, you could administer some kind of drug and then hanging from the bed or something. Wasn't it not like six feet tall or something at the bed? 
Yeah. yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> Did they go through the mechanics of the of how he hung, hung himself? No, nothing like that. Right. So I thought it was like a six foot tall bunk bed, and it's like, well, how do you hang yourself off that? Well, people kill themselves in prison all the time, don't they? Unfortunately. Yeah, I don't know. I don't it's know. not an uncommon common thing for someone to hang themselves in prison, is it? Off no. a bed or I mean, off anything. You'll know, eavesdroppers, if you've ever been arrested, the first thing they do is take your shoes off. <laughs> You know, before you yeah, your belt. before they throw you in the slammer. I wonder what he. I can't remember what he said. I think it was his shirt. I think they said he hanged himself with. I thought it was the bed sheet. Well, right, maybe it was a bed sheet then. He would have to rip it up, wouldn't he, and then make it into a rope. It's a very difficult thing, though, that isn't it, to hang yourself like that. You must have that will to stay alive or whatever. It must kick in at some point. Self-preservation is the like the number one governing instinct we have, isn't it? Unless he's like, if the bed was six foot, I'm pretty sure he's he wasn't a tall man. He might have even <laughs> been shorter than me. I don't know if there's a reference. I'm, I'm thinking five seven. So that's five inches clearance, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. It's not a big guy, no. Definitely not. So potentially he could have like tied. Could he tie his own hands? You then... see what we're doing here. We're trying to. Yeah, we're trying to rationalise this this story that we've been we're being told. I mean, there, it's just a bit fishy. I just think it's fishy. But the other thing as well is people get put on suicide watch in hospitals and you know um, prisons all the time and manage to kill themselves, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We'll never know. No, I don't think so. It'd be a JFK, wouldn't it? This one. Yeah, let's not get started on that. <laughs> so, I've got, I'm going to finish this tonight. I've only got about eight eight more pages of The True Believer, and then on to the next one. Crush that in a weekend. Oh, have you? Yeah, start it Friday night. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going on to a beastie one after that. How about it? Take me a few weeks. No, it's about the Jewish revolt of 72 AD. Okay. That uh, one. Destruction of the Second Temple. I love Jewish history. Right. Well, like old, old, well, it's not Old Testament, but, you know. Where's the Jewish... Where were, well, you know, Solomon built the first temple, King Solomon. And then mm-hmm. and then that got destroyed. And then in the... in seventy. David. Sorry? I thought it was David. No, Solomon. Yeah. Solomon and uh, Hiram Abiff. Hang on a minute. The, the telly in the front rooms has switched itself on. Oh, oh get on to Soul Sisters Paranormal. I think my wife might be uh, doing something on her phone. Oh, no. What is she doing? She's just a oh, bit creepy. Dear. Oh, it's not, it's not the ring. You haven't put the ring in the video player, have you? <laughs> no. some, some jerky woman's going to come crawling at you in a minute. Thank God I don't have a video player anymore. Jerky. <laughs> Some yeah, jerky, jerky, jerky Japanese chick. <laughs> the tail. Mm. Oh, it freaked me out when I first saw that. Yeah, I don't, I don't like thinking about that one. No, it's the jerky stuff. It's so natural. Yeah, and the move, yeah. She moves <laughs> fast, doesn't she, and slow and sneaks up. And, oh, yeah. You know, and she's down a well. And, Ugh. Yeah. All right, then. Should we, should we do one? Yeah. All right. Yeah, nice deep, to, uh, debrief. 
Yeah, are we are we including this in or what? Uh, is it be... <laughs> What's the idea, yeah. Ben? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. You might have to edit that first. Uh, the uh, Ask Siri thing, maybe. I don't know. What was Why? that? What was that? I didn't even. Well, I guess say it again, am I? Because <laughs> I had a, a Huawei phone. <laughs> all right. Okay. What you have to? I think it'll be all right. What are you on about? You'll have to listen back. Okay. You'll have to cut all this bit out as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. We'll disappear then. Okay. Until next time. Ta-ra. Jeffrey Epstein right. didn't kill himself. Jeffrey mm. Archer. Is he still alive? I think so. His lane's alive. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. What you need to do with the dessert spoon is put it in a bowl of warm water as well before you shove it up your ass. I imagine the carrot was my penis. <laughs> <laughs>